Welcome to The Crux. I am your host, Tessa King. And co-host, Casey McIntosh. At age 27, Aaron Ralston was trapped in a canyon in Canyonlands National Park for six days. He had a limited supply of food and water, and he had not told his friends or family where he had gone. You had said that Moro Prosperi was the Robinson Crusoe of the desert. That is correct. Well, I'm going to say that Aaron Ralston is the Dr. Lawrence Gordon of Repelling in Utah. Dr. Lawrence Gordon. I, I don't know who this person is. Um, he's the doctor in the Saw movies who cuts off his own legs. <laughs> That's <laughs> He's talented. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was a doctor, so he had some precision on that front. But that, I suppose, is a major spoiler for both Saw and the story. <laughs> so Aaron Ralston, he was a Colorado native. He was a very athletic guy. In the early 2000s, he had a goal to climb all of the 14,000 feet peaks in Colorado. They call them 14ers. Um, and there are a lot of them. Do you care to guess how many are in Colorado? Mm, I'm going to guess 25. Well, it's a lot more than that. <laughs> oh, uh, 85? Okay, smaller than that. Uh, 65. That's very close. We'll, we'll go with 65. <laughs> it's very confusing because depending on what source you look at, I've seen anywhere between 54 and 59, and I'm wondering if that means they're maybe on state lines, and that's why the numbers are skewed. Mm, I see. In one of his articles, Ralston had said there are 59, so we'll just roll with that, because that was his goal, was to do, um, did I say 49? It's 59. 59 um, peaks. So in addition to that, he wasn't just wanting to climb these peaks, he wanted to do them solo and in the winter. Hmm. That's an for, interesting goal. Yeah, uh, added challenge. And I think it's partially because it had never been a documented feat. Other people had done all these peaks, but he wanted to be the first one to do them all in winter by himself. So something I would never want to do myself. <laughs> But good on you. Uncharted territory. <laughs> Gets him going every time. I guess I guess you just have to find ways to feel like you stand out in your athleticism. That's the only thing I can gather. It's not enough just to do it or do it with other people. You have to find a way where you stand out. Well, I'm I'm gathering that he definitely found a way to stand out. Oh, he most certainly did. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about him. I think it's interesting. He said in this article I read, he said, I'd recently read two best-selling accounts of extremes in the wilderness, both by John Krakauer. Hmm. Wouldn't you know? That included Into the Wild and Into Thin Air, which we covered talking about Beck Weathers, which is kind of fun. He took a really different viewpoint on it, though. He had said... That as he read Into Thin Air, this is what he was quoted saying, I wondered what I would have done in those climbers' places. So he more was like, 
wanting to do it after reading those books about people in extreme wilderness scenarios where I had the very opposite effect from reading those books. So I'm like, that's something I never wanted to. <laughs> so very interesting. I mean, especially because when you think about it, this is like near death experiences or into the wild, the main character, uh, Chris McCandles, he died. So not a very good outcome in that book either. Mm -mm. Anyway, so he was doing all of these crazy stunts outside, including backcountry skiing. And in 2003, the same year that he got stuck in Canyonlands National Park, he had gotten stuck in an avalanche with some friends where they were all buried and they had the gear to get out. He said that everyone survived, but their friendship did not survive that accident. That's interesting. You would think that they would be closer. I don't know. It is interesting, but I guess my point is is that there's reckless behavior up until the point of him being alone in the national park. Do tell. Okay, so we'll get into the meat of the story. So in April 2003, not much longer after this avalanche incident, he had plans to go on a mountaineering trip with friends. The trip got canceled last minute. But he had the time off, so he decided to take a last-minute trip to Utah. He didn't know really where he wanted to go, so he didn't leave a note for his roommates. He didn't tell his family. He just was like, hey, I'm going to Utah. So that's, that's the crux early on is making the decision to go not only alone, but not tell anywhere, anyone where you're going. Anyway, so he ends up in Canyonlands National Park. Basically, his plan was to do a 30-mile circuit through the Blue John and Horseshoe Canyons. So he was going to bike about 15 miles and then do some canyoning, if that's what you call it, and then bike back, make a little loop. All he had that day was his pack, which was about 25 pounds. He had his climbing gear, about a gallon of water, which would be good for a short day trip, and a little bit of food. And... Really, he was just wearing basic outdoor gear, sneakers, t-shirt, biking shorts. So, and that is not ideal if you're going to be stuck in a canyon for six days, but we'll continue. So he biked 15 miles and chained his bike to a tree. And in the afternoon, he made his way up into the Blue John Canyon. So I have never done any any hikes or climbs similar have you done much mm, I mean definitely not anything by myself and mm -hmm. it's hard to even picture what he was trying to accomplish like he's going to do some solo climbing and then basically walk out afterwards is that what it seemed like to you that's what it seems basically, like to me go back to the bike yeah, I guess what's confusing about it is that they're canyons, so it doesn't say anything about him climbing up, just climbing down. So I'm kind of unclear as to what the terrain is like, where you would just be rappelling down mm -hmm. instead of also climbing up, unless they just glossed over this. But I know that people do this kind of thing all the time. They want to explore the canyons, so what better way than to rappel down? Anyway, seems, seems a little crazy. I can just picture myself getting lost in about five minutes in this situation by myself. And had he ever had, had he ever gone to this location in the past? You know, you know, they didn't say, 
And it's unclear. I know he had a guidebook, so he kind of knew where he was. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is later that they said, even with people looking for him, with him being in a slot like that, no helicopter would have been able to see where he was. Yeah, he was kind of tucked away. Yeah, so he would have been screwed had he not gone to extreme measures. So anyway, so he's making his way down this slot and this particular slot was called the big drop and basically there are a lot of lips and ledges to maneuver around and the slot becomes narrower as you descend and it was noted in the article I read it was about a 65 foot drop down so as he's almost to the bottom he says that the space that he occupies is only about four feet wide so okay it's it's a small slot and he is about 10 to 11 feet to the next ledge on his way down. And he sees what he describes as a chalk stone. So do you know what a chalk stone is? Mm. Like, like someone left it behind? Like- no. No, I had to look this up because I'm not a rock climber. Um, for those of you who don't know, a chalk stone is basically just a boulder that's wedged into a vertical space. Hmm. Okay. So... It's not connected to the surrounding rock, but it's just wedged in a place. So how he was maneuvering is he was able to put his weight tentatively on that chalk stone. And he was like, okay, this will hold my weight. And he was going to use that stone to kind of maneuver his way down to the next ledge. So he said that he kind of got down to his stomach and extended his arms fully so he could get down. And as he's climbing to the next ledge, the boulder falls down on him. And it's a ledge, right? So it's not like he can take a step back without falling to his death. So this chalk stone is the one that fell down on him? Yep. Okay. And so yeah. he's not roped in. He's just... He must be roped in, but he said he couldn't maneuver. So maybe it's just the way... Maybe it was the tautness of the rope. Maybe there were it, there was some looseness in the rope. Yeah, maybe. I, I just know that he's like, this is a small space. It's only about four feet. I can't step because then I'll fall off a ledge. And just in that space of time, I'm sure everything happened so quickly. It was enough for him to move out of the way to avoid getting mostly hit by the rock. Mm-hmm. But it totally pinned his right hand to the wall. So he said, like, with his fingers extended, his thumb out, he's stuck in place. And the way it is, he knows that he has to move quickly if he's to salvage his hand. Because without any circulation, he knows that he will lose it. Within a half hour, his right hand is starting to take on a sickly gray appearance. And it looks totally unnatural, has no feeling at all. That's not, that was probably a horrible experience. So what you're saying is that that boulder, it slid down and he basically caught it like a ball and then it just pinned his hand right where it was. So he could still ha- have a pretty good visualization of his hand as this is happening. Yeah, he can see his hand and he had a camera and it looks like a video camera with him in this canyon. And so you can actually look up pictures and we can post some to our Instagram too where You can see where his hand is, but you can also see that his wrist kind of goes up into the boulder, too. Okay. Just where it's pinned. It's bad. 
So he must have had his backpack on too when this was Yeah, up. he did. He did. It's a good thing he did. Otherwise, he would have been SOL. Yeah, and it's still bad because remember, he just thought he was going to be out for a day, not six, stuck with his arm between a wall and a rock. A and rock and a hard place. Yeah, yeah, that's actually where that uh, phrase comes from, is this guy. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. Gotcha. <laughs> now I feel like a five-year-old. <laughs> it's the first time in a long time. Yeah. Thanks for making me feel young again, Tessa. You're welcome. I'll always preserve your youth. Okay, thanks. All right, go on. Well, so he's very experienced with, I mean, at this point, he had already done 36 of 59 14ers. He's been out. He's experienced. He knows that the average survival in the desert like this is probably within two to three days without water. And sometimes less if you're exerting yourself in extreme heat. You could be dead in a day. So hard not to freak out in that scenario. And anyway, so he took it step by step and was thinking of options. And there were only three, truly. So here they are. The first option, and this is from least extreme to most extreme, is... The first would be to excavate the rock around his hand with his multi-tool knife. Option two is to rig ropes and anchor above himself to lift the boulder off his hand, like a pulley system. Mm -hmm. And then three, amputate his arm. So, and he, he goes through these. So the first, he tries to break away some of the boulder with no success. He was saying that the canyon walls were a little bit softer than the boulder itself. So he could actually carve things into the canyon wall, but he couldn't do anything with this rock. Which is probably part of the problem because the surrounding stone probably gave way for this boulder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, true. So he tries to break away the boulder, no success. That first day, he's already really, truly considering cutting off his arm. But before he does that, he tries to construct a pulley system, which is actually very clever, you know, because he has all this roping equipment from rappelling through this canyon. But he couldn't get enough, you know, weight distribution to actually move, you know, move this huge boulder. Mm -hmm. There wasn't enough to actually do anything. And then he's like, well, I could cut off my arm. But the one thing is, my multi-tool knife will not cut through bone. Which is not something that I originally thought of when I was, I've heard of the story, this has been around, they had a movie with James Franco. I was just thinking about how horrible it is to have to cut off your arm. I didn't think about getting through the bones in your arm with Mm -hmm. a, with just a knife from your backpack. So... He's like, I can't cut through my bone. I'm worried about bleeding out anyway. And as he's sitting here, he's thinking, you know, I did this to myself. I chose to come out here. I chose to do the slot canyon by myself. And I chose not to tell anyone where I was going. And I think that's the biggest thing here is that if you're going to do anything outdoors, you should, especially when you're hiking or climbing you should not do it by yourself and number two you got to tell people where you're going yes 
survival rules. Yeah, they're they are big ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, because obviously he was in really good shape. He was capable, and this is just one of those unforeseen things. And just like we touched base on in the Bex Weathers episode, you know, the, we have a lot of outdoor activities that you can do here as well. And I think every year I hear of someone who is young and capable who goes out into the national park and dies Mm -hmm. usually by themselves usually you know just making a silly mistake like this Aaron yeah well and you don't even have to be that far away for something like this to happen I mean Mm -hmm. you could just be somewhere that's not even really off the grid that just doesn't have great cell service and you fall and hurt your leg or something you know just doesn't really take very much yeah and I think it's hard to know all the terrain anyway like he's from Colorado maybe he's more familiar with what's nearby but maybe not considering the climbing risks of this canyon anyway they were just not good decisions <laughs> all bad <laughs> all bad well actually the the worst thing is just the having to decide to cut your arm off because the other two choices were good choices it just they mm-hmm. didn't they weren't going to work out with what the tools that he had mm-hmm yeah, well, and if he didn't have a knife, he, I don't know what you would do. Okay, he so. He would just die. Will you get to the crux of this already and tell me how he cut his arm off, please? I'm dying to know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, you're dying to know. <laughs> yes. Well, so by the third morning, he started making a tourniquet. He tries a few different things, materials from his backpack, He has a camelback, and he tries to use the hose from the camelback, which was, once again, another smart idea that didn't end up working just because it was too rubbery to get really tight. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't tight enough to cut off his circulation entirely. So, and by the way, like you said, one of his arms is trapped. So even getting into his backpack is kind of a pain because he can't get both straps off of his shoulders Mm -hmm. anyway so he at this point tries to saw through his arm with a multi-tool blade but in this article he was saying that the blade would not break the skin it was not sharp enough so three o'clock that day he urinates into his camelback he's starting to think you know he's limited water supply he's got to make it through by day four, he makes a video for his family, basically telling them what happened and that he's sorry that he's going to die out in the canyon. So in day four, he actually successfully stabs himself in the forearm. So based on this article, what I'm gathering is that he half-heartedly tried to cut into his arm, but really wasn't fully there yet. He wasn't desperate enough yet at that point in time. Exactly. He's like, it's dull. It's too dull. I don't think I can do it. Mm-hmm. I think, because I think you would really have to overcome that, I don't know, you just, self-preservation, you can't, yep. you can't convince yourself to do it unless you really, really need to. Yeah. So he stabs himself in the forearm and... This is kind of creepy to me. He said that he could feel the blade tapping on his radius. So you have two bones in your arm, your lower forearm, your radius, and your ulna. And so he could 
feel in between the bone. And he said that he could feel the vibration all the way up to his elbow. So what, where is he trying to, to cut his arm off at the wrist or where is he going? Well, he was thinking more in his forearm, like near his elbow, mm-hmm. I think just like cause of the joint. Yeah. I also don't think that maybe he was thinking straight at anyway. So, cause I think if it were me, I would probably go closer to the hand. Cause you think that you have a lot of fine bones there that maybe you could get through them. Yeah. I don't know. What would your go-to be? I, I think you have to go with the joint because otherwise you have to break the bone. Yeah. Well, so anyway, he does not cut his arm off with a point. He just gets the knife in. So day five, by day five, it's been 90 hour, or 96 hours without sleep, 90 hours trapped, and 25 hours with no water. He's been drinking urine. Oh, that, that sounds like a terrible experience. Yeah. I kind of was wondering if like Moro Prosperi, this was going to help him because his blood is dehydrated. Like it's Mm -hmm. really, really viscous. Mm -hmm. So he's going to bleed really slowly. Oh yeah, that's true. That's very true. And he also had had the tourniquet around his arm. So that probably made a difference as well. Uh, Anyway, by day six, he's trying again at the boulder, really going at it, desperate. And he's trying to excavate it with this knife. And at this point, he accidentally stabs his thumb. His bad thumb? The thumb that's caught okay. in the rock. And he realizes that it's totally decayed. He described it as decayed flesh. He starts prodding at his thumb with his knife. And he says that the knife goes in like butter. And it releases a hissing sound, which is escaping decomposition gases oh my goodness yeah so he was shocked at how fast that he had experienced decay and that is crazy that it's just so gross. made the hair on the back of my neck stand up <laughs> yeah not only because i would imagine that you wouldn't have any feeling in your hand anymore and you would be you, you know you're not going to be able to keep your hand anyway but for your hand to be exuding gases because it's decayed so much in that time frame well, it doesn't take very long and you you said that this is like what day, day is this? six yeah this is, yeah yeah and it's just like he was saying it's like if i was going to keep my hand it would have to be within hours of this happening to me because of the circulation so yeah. anyway so this kind of gives him the idea i think this is really what turned things around in his head where he's so desperate and things are really bad, he started to think, if I can torque my arm far enough, I can break my forearm bones, the bones of my forearm. Mm -hmm. And so what he does is he adjusts his arm to place the maximum pressure on the bones and breaks both the ulna and radius at the wrist. Yeah. So that is just... and, And in this article by Outside Magazine... It just describes the sounds. They did not break together at the same time. So he had to break one and then the other. And it just was convenient that they were in the same place in his arm, Mm -hmm. probably based on where he's putting pressure on his arm. Uh, And so then he was able to amputate without having to cut through the bone. 
but he just talks about the euphoria he felt in being able to do this because he had thought that he was already going to die. Wow. He said it felt like I had been reborn. And so what he had to do was make a makeshift sling and was able to repel about 60 additional feet to the floor of the canyon. Oh, my goodness. And this article had said that that should have been the most difficult part of his entire day, the most technical part. Mm -hmm. And he did it, you know, being malnourished six days in, no water, bleeding out, makes it to the bottom. So it's pretty amazing. And so he's covered in blood, and he manages to get out of the canyon and runs into a family out hiking who are able to call emergency services and get a helicopter out. Did he ride his bike? Like, did he find the bike? Or did he find these people first? Oh, he found the people. Okay. Yeah, they and it sounds like they must have had some sort of cell phone reception because they were able to get the helicopter right where they found him. It's crazy. Can you imagine just being on a family hiking trip and run into a guy without a hand that's bleeding, yeah, bleeding all out over the place? Yeah. And plus he was probably really malnourished and looking a little scary by that point. Yeah, I think you would think you were hallucinating. Also said this family was Dutch, so just a fun fact, not even American, like on your international vacation. Hey. <laughs> you will never believe what we saw on our vacation. <laughs> yeah. So he was airlifted out. Yeah. So they took him to an emergency room in Moab, and he was able to walk in on his own without help. Wow. He had also lost over 40 pounds in that six-day period. Part of that was 25% of his blood volume. That's impressive. That's crazy. And he didn't look like such a big guy to begin with, so I'm sure he looked pretty horrible at that point. What's his life looking like afterwards? Okay, well, what do you think happened to his arm? Do you mean the remaining arm? Yeah, <laughs> no, sitting no, out there? <laughs> yeah, sitting out there. <laughs> his his arm that's still attached? No, the arm that's not attached. I don't I don't know. I just thought it was interesting. They sent a crew out to retrieve his arm. That is really interesting. Yeah, and part of it is because this got so much publicity. They didn't want somebody else going out looking for it. Yeah, they didn't want people to like go to where he was and like go visit his arm. So they sent people to go retrieve it. And then, so they give it back to Aaron Ralston, and he had it cremated. And then he took it back out to the slot and spread the ashes in the canyon where they belonged. Okay, that's <laughs> weird. That's super weird. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I think it would be weird to cremate just, like, part of yourself while the rest of you is living. Yeah, and the other thing is that your bone does not incinerate, and so they have to grind that down anyway. So how much actual flesh, flesh. was still left over to cremate? It had to be the smallest box. It was actually <laughs> like if it fit in a thimble, I bet. Well, he was really, really into that symbolism. He had a Yeah, he felt like he needed to leave a part of himself out there. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, since this happened to him, he's been back to Blue John Canyon 10 times. So with friends and with news crews and, of course, when this movie was made, 127 hours, it is kind of crazy. I don't know if he learned his lesson. 
not in going back to Blue John Canyon. It just, he seems like he's gone on to do so much outside. He finished all of the 14ers in Colorado. I don't know. It didn't specify if they were all in the winter and all solo, but I hope not (laughs) after this. Hopefully he just adjusted his uh, way of doing things in the outdoors a little bit. Yeah, I made note of something that he said a few times in different interviews. He had said that climbing made him feel like he was actually adequate or good at something in his life. And so he felt like he had to continuously put himself in riskier environments to actually feel anything. Yeah, I think that's common with a lot of extreme sports. But Yeah, well, once again, some Beck Weathers action here. Yeah. Pushing yourself to extremes, well, living I'm gl- for the achievements. I'm, I'm glad that he kept climbing because obviously that's, that's something that he loved and I can see why he wouldn't want to stop. But again, mm-hmm. hopefully he's smarter about it. than Yeah, to a lesser extent. Yeah. Yeah. This article I read said that he has a bunch of different prosthetics so he can do all sorts of activities. He got into ultramarathoning. Um Still did more extreme mountaineering and whitewater rafting. So, in addition, another article said that he felt like he adopted a sense of invincibility. That since he hadn't died in Utah, nothing could kill him. So, once again, that doesn't sound like someone who's learned their lesson. That doesn't sound encouraging. (laughs) No, I mean, he's still alive out there. So, Uh, it's just interesting. He also said in an interview where they're talking about 127 hours that he would have changed nothing about that experience. He's like, if I had to go back and do it again, I still wouldn't leave a note. I wouldn't have brought any more equipment. He's like, that had to happen to me, that exact way, all of the elements. Well, I know, I mean, I've never cut my arm off, obviously, but I know what it feels like to feel like, you're not going to break through and you can't get something accomplished. And then all of a sudden you have that light bulb moment and, and like somehow against all odds, it ends up working out, you know, which Mm -hmm. is basically what happened to him. Yeah. And it sounds like it gave him more inspiration for life in some ways. He said, if I didn't happen to me that way, then I wouldn't have this position of appreciation and gratitude towards life. And since then, he's gotten married and had a kid, and he started thinking more that he didn't need adventure or adventures like that. It's not as much of a priority since he has his family. Mm-hmm. And he does a bunch of motivational speaking now. That's really cool. Yeah, I think it's cool. It's very interesting. He was saying that it's weird to be famous for something like this because people criticize him, and they're like, well, he went out and made a stupid decision. Didn't tell him he made several stupid decisions. Why are we idolizing this? And he, and his response was like, I don't know. You tell me. I, can't, I don't get it either. Well, here's the thing, though. Probably 90% of people that would go out and do the same thing wouldn't have made it. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah, well, and he definitely had the skill set to be out there. You know, he had yeah. several other options that just didn't pan out and I think you know by day six it's hard to say what anybody would really be like Mm -hmm. 
just because I think, especially if your hand is decayed and you can't feel it, you're like, what's the point anyway? Why am I salvaging this? Yeah. And your perspective is obviously different at that point. Yeah. And you're so dehydrated, malnourished, not thinking straight. I think it would be easier than one might think. Yeah. It's easy when you feel healthy and great to be like, yeah, I would never cut off my arm, but. Well, hopefully we never have to make that decision. Oh, for sure. (laughs) All right. Well, this wraps up another edition of The Crux.